0: Time for another episode of Occam's Razor, a podcast about the unexplained, brought to you on podcast radio with your host, Jim baird
1: This in particular would be of enormous value because it's something that D.B. Cooper himself actually owned.
0: All right, so welcome to Occam's Razor. This is episode 48. Uh, we've got a very special guest tonight, all the way from Arizona in the United States, uh, Eric Euliss, who is a respected authority and historian uh, who specifies in the D.B. Cooper hijacking case from 1971. Um, if you have been living under a rock, you uh, may not have heard of the D.B. Cooper case, but uh, just for the slightly uninitiated, I'll give you a little bit of background. On Thanksgiving evening in 1971, a man calling himself Dan Cooper, uh, which was erroneously reported as D.B. by local media at the time, um, hijacked a Northwest Orient flight travelling between Portland and Seattle. Upon Landing in Seattle, Cooper ransomed the passengers for 200 200- to and four parachutes. The plane was then directed uh, to take off head head towards Mexico, Mexico City by the way of Reno for a fuel stop. Approximately 36 minutes after departing Seattle, somewhere just north of Portland, Cooper parachuted out of the back of the jet. Well, that's the hypothesis anyway. Uh, Eric, as we said, is a uh, world's leading expert on DB Cooper. He has researched, investigated, and searched for and extensively written about the case over the last dozen years or so. So first of all, how are you, Eric? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. How about yourself? Can't, can't complain, man. Um, I've got to apologize because it's about 2 a.m. in Arizona, isn't it?
1: That's right. It's a uh, little left, 2 o'clock in the yep. morning here, I believe. Eighteen hours behind you. Yes.
0: Yes. Okay. I hope you've got a uh, strong pot of coffee on on the go. No problem. Now, I was alerted to uh, well to your to your presence. Actually, in on reflection, I think I've seen you on um, maybe documentaries in the past um, pertaining to DB Cooper and stuff like that. You've had a presence on you know the big time, haven't you, on History Channel and and Discovery and things like that. Um, how, how long have you been researching the case? First of all.
1: I've been researching the case pretty actively about 13 years. I've been aware of the case since the late 1970s, but it's really been the last 12 or 13 years that i really opted to, to get into the case and uh, try to tackle this enigma that is D.B. Cooper, which is a real story. That's what makes this different from a lot of other mysteries, is there's absolutely no dispute as to whether or not there was a guy named D.B. Cooper who skyjacked a jet and and uh, jumped out never to be seen or heard from again. So it's, again, once again, it's been about 12 or 13 years.
0: And you have you always been un- interested in the unexplained? Do you come from that sort of investigative background, or was it just something you did on the side? Or?
1: You know, it's one of those things that um, I think initially started out uh, as an interest in aviation. I've just, as a little boy, I was interested in aviation, and obviously the essence of this This mystery involves an airliner, Uh, but I've been one of those people, as long as I can recall, that's been fascinated with challenges, whether it's the Rubik's Cube or what have you. And uh, for whatever reason, DB Cooper was just the right mix. It just kind of possessed the right mix of fascination and aviation history and allure and everything else. And uh, I suppose I was just up for the challenge of trying to figure out who this guy was and what actually happened.
0: Why, why do you think the the DB Cooper case is such a mystique around it? You know, is it because it's unsolved, or because it frustrated the FBI for so many years? It's because of, you know, never really had a, a viable lead. While well, there's been theories, obviously of people responsible and that sort of stuff, but none of that's been concrete to date. Do, do you think that contributes to it?
1: I think there's a lot that has contributed. Uh, creating this, this story, this folklore, larger than life almost type of person in, in D.B. Cooper. Uh, part of it relates to the time in American history, again, November 1971, that the 60s leading into the 70s was a very tumultuous time in American history. And frankly, there was this uh, this attitude, this prevailing attitude of uh, stick it to the man. Uh, you know, there were these. Americans seem to embrace the notion of somebody who just stuck it to the man, took it to the authorities and got away with it. Part of it also, and I don't think this is any small part of it, part of it has to relate to the fact that nobody was harmed. There was nobody, uh, you know, nobody had a gun stuck in their face or or physically harmed or anything of that nature. In fact, uh, the passengers weren't even aware that the jet had been skyjacked until they actually walked off the jet in Seattle and were met by law enforcement. So really the only people on the airliner that had any idea what was taking place, that the jet was being skyjacked, were the the flight crew, uh, the pilots and obviously the uh, flight attendants in the back. Uh, so that that has something to do with it. Plus, I think there's this, Nice, healthy mix of James Bond. You know, DB Cooper wore a suit uh, with a you know a conservative black suit with a with a black tie, and he you know had was conservatively trimmed, clean cut hair. Uh, And you know, I mean, the (laughs) the guy (laughs) rolls out with two hundred grand and jumps out of the jet with a parachute at ten thousand feet and some. It's something less than ideal in terms of weather uh, conditions and uh, managed to escape and get away with it. So and the other thing is he was co- cool as a cucumber. He didn't come across as the kind of guy who was nervous or at all concerned about this. He, he was very comfortable in this environment. And uh, and and frankly, I think that's what it required. And uh, ultimately that all of that together, I think, has contributed to D.B. Cooper being D.B. Cooper. <laughs>
0: It's uh, interesting. You, you mentioned the time 1971, obviously Vietnam War and, and that sort of stuff was was going on at the time. And he adopted, well, the, the myth of DB Cooper as it was sort of led people to adopt kind of an anti hero um, perspective on things. And as you say, looking for someone to just effectively stick it to the man and, and being a gentleman kind of a hijacker, well, that kind of romanticized the whole thing a little bit, didn't it? You know, because the fact of the matter was he was, you know, he was a, it was a, Terrorism Act, you know, and he, and he was paid out a ransom.
1: That's correct. It was a little different, though, because up to uh, D.B. Cooper's skyjacking, there had been several skyjackings, but they had by and large been uh, political in nature. You know, someone getting on a jet demanding that they get flown to Cuba or that some political prisoners be released somewhere. So D.B. Cooper was really kind of the first guy who actually was in this for the money, stored at $200,000. And at the end of the day, you know, the insurance company uh, was out $180,000. The airline had a $20,000 deductible. And uh, there weren't a hell of a lot of people shedding too many tears about an insurance company actually having to cough up one hundred eighty grand back in 1971. So again, all of that really contributed to this this. Allure, this folk hero sort of mantra that's been affixed to mm-hmm. D.B. Cooper We are 50 years later, and we still know very little about the guy, at least officially speaking. So,
0: you know, and as I said before, he's been, um, you know, profiled in, in a lot of documentaries over the years and stuff like that. Even like even movies, I was watching a movie called uh, "Without a Paddle" a little while ago. I don't know if you've seen this film. I think it was act- it was actually filmed in New Zealand. That's why I brought it up. That film, um, and it had uh, Zach, what's his name, in it, and Matthew Lillard, and a couple other guys. And and they they found Burt Reynolds hiding in a cave, and he was the legendary DB Cooper. So it's the, as I said, the romanticism is is well and truly alive of the whole thing, isn't it?
1: I suppose uh, that may actually be pretty close to the truth. Uh, Who knows? But the interesting thing is I've heard from a handful of people recently that who have seen the movie that had no idea that it was based upon a real story, that there really was this D.B. Cooper, this D.B. Cooper case, this D.B. Cooper story. So uh, we're sort of entering an interesting phase as far as this goes, given that we're 50 years out. A lot of people weren't alive when this thing took place. Uh, and, you know, consequently, aren't even aware that there, you know, there really was a guy named DB Cooper, uh, but it's real, a real story. It's a mystery. And, uh, so it's, it's fascinating. And and every day we've got, I can just speak for me personally. I've got new people reaching out to me on a daily basis, uh, that, that hear the story in passing somehow and become uh, very fascinated in trying to figure out who this guy was and what happened.
0: So, getting down to the nuts and bolts of it, what what's your version of the narrative? You know, we're, over the years we've heard. Obviously, there's been a few different people put forward. Um, an established rhetoric has also been that he probably didn't even survive the jump. Um, where do you sit in the middle of that? Now we're going to come to you, you hunting for, well, the areas where you think he may have buried some of the cash. Some of the cash was recovered uh, by a young boy in about 1980, wasn't it, um, um, in 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 North Washington there. Um, So what do you think happened?
1: Well, I think that the evidence is very clear that TB Cooper not only survived, but he walked away with the majority of the money. Uh, I've been very fortunate uh, because in later years, starting in 2016, through a Freedom of Information Act request, Uh, a lot of the FBI files were finally opened and released to the public. Now, this stuff is redacted. Some of these pages are heavily redacted, so they're of little value, but there are certainly documents and things that are very valuable. So what we have here uh, is we've got right now about 25,000 pages worth of FBI files related to the uh, investigation going back to the very beginning So that's given people like me the opportunity to read precisely what happened and how the investigation went, what unfolded. Uh, And there are other things that have taken place in intervening years. Obviously, we've had enhances in in, uh, science and technology that we've been able to apply to the case as well, that they just frankly didn't have the opportunity to avail themselves of in 1971, 1972. All of this. Uh, I think pretty clearly indicates that D.B. Cooper did actually survive. I I think he initially planned to jump near Seattle. Uh, He was delayed and he ended up jumping about 36 minutes after the plane took off from Seattle and landed about 150 miles from what his original target was. So he landed very near Portland, Oregon. Uh, And that's critical. Uh, If you accept the fact, and again, I think the evidence is clear that he uh, had some issues and had to improvise and ended up landing about 150 miles from where he wanted to land originally. Uh, a lot of other things start to make sense. You know, how is it that some of the money was found buried on the beach and so forth? Uh, you begin to understand that you know he had to stash these items temporarily, work his way back to civilization, and then at some point he came back and retrieved. Uh, at least the lion's share of the money, but there were a few packets that were left behind, which, as you noted, were found in 1980. The one really big, interesting aspect of this case is we've been unable to prove whether any of the ransom was ever spent. It seems actually likely that the the ransom wasn't spent, uh, which is intriguing to consider. Why would that be? Why would a guy skyjack a jet, you know, successfully walk out with what ended up being $194,000 because 6,000 was accidentally buried on a beach. Uh, but there, it, it, opens up some interesting things to consider and so forth. But at the end of the day, I just think he was a guy who was down on his luck. I don't think he was a career criminal. Um, yeah, I think he was just a guy who probably had a pink slip in hand, probably worked in the aerospace sector for whatever reason, decided this was his ticket out. Um, uh, you know, from his financial troubles or what have you, uh, happened to be one or two steps ahead of the authority the entire way, the authorities the entire way, and just didn't talk about it, didn't brag about it. You know, he wasn't showing up at the bar the next day bragging to his buddies about, you know, walking up with 200 grand. And I think that all of that contributed to this guy ultimately being successful.
0: What sort of profile did the FBI make him? Obviously, they had an identikit and so forth, but they didn't know much more than that. Um, Usually in these situations, they'll bring in, um, you know, profiling expert, you know, John Douglas type sort of guys for this. What did they come up with in terms of his uh, background? Because there's obviously been a lot of noise made in the past about him having... Uh, perhaps being in the military with the ability to jump out of a plane because that's not something everyone could do unless you'd perhaps been a paratrooper or or similar. Given his age at the time they they estimated in mid forties, didn't they? Um would that would that correlate with someone who had undergone that sort of training? Um, you know, in the perhaps Korean War or something like that? <clears throat>
1: yeah, yeah. I mean given yeah, the witnesses pegged him as being in the mid-40s there. That would make sense, that the guy was either on the very tail end of World War II or was perhaps in the Korean War. Uh, there's, there's not really much that I can think of that settles that issue definitively once and for all. Um, you know, the, the fact that the guy jumped out of an airplane really doesn't mean much i mean obviously the guy at least in my mind had some skydiving experience i mean i've, I've done it i've skydived and and i'm telling you what it takes some stones uh, you know a ten thousand jump out of the back of a 727 at night in less than ideal conditions uh plus just given how he handled himself he seemed to be comfortable he seemed to be working in his wheelhouse uh but uh As far as the FBI profile is concerned, they've really kind of been all over the map with this. I mean, the initial profile was actually quite detailed. They figured the guy was a Catholic. They figured the guy uh, was probably sort of a middle management type of person that had at least a high school education. Uh, They figured he was probably somewhat of a loner. Uh, In later years, it sort of morphed into the guy didn't know what the heck he was. Didn't have any skyjacking experience. Knew just enough to be dangerous. That type of thing. Uh, so it's a little inconsistent as to what the official uh, version is of you know who this guy was. I think that. What I, how I described him a few minutes ago is probably the most accurate. Uh, you know, by all accounts, the guy was middle aged, forty five years of age. Uh, he was very familiar with the Boeing seven twenty seven, which was the type of jet that he skyjacked and ultimately jumped from, which indicates uh, there perhaps some sort of Boeing or aerospace connection. Again, it's also important to remember that this is nineteen seventy one that we're talking about. So. Uh, A lot of the information and knowledge that he displayed with respect to the 727 in particular would have been very difficult to come by even today, even today's date with the Internet. It would have been difficult to come by. In 1971, it would have been magnitudes of order much more difficult. So I think it's pretty clear that he had some sort of aerospace connection, Boeing in particular, It just so happens that that was a very uh, tumultuous time in Boeing's history as well. They had laid off during the year 1971, they laid off about 55,000 people at Boeing. And those layoffs affected obviously subcontractors and so forth as well. So it is easy to envision a scenario whereby D.B. Cooper had some sort of relationship to Boeing, uh, had a pink slip in hand. No real prospects with respect to how to replace that income that he just lost. Uh, Perhaps he was a little bit chafed at the way the whole thing came about. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, But nonetheless, I think that he's a guy who had some skydiving experience. Uh, I don't think he was an engineer, but he definitely executed this, this plan. I won't say flawlessly, but pretty close to flawlessly. And again, uh, the, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak, it's been 50 years and we really know very little about the guy and for all intents and purposes, uh, the guy got away with it all.
0: Um, we'll just talk about what you've been doing most recently. Um, so it's Tina bar, is it? Um, that's where you've been most sort of Columbia river around that area.
1: That's correct. Yeah. In 1980, uh, At a place called Tina Bar, which is a stretch of beach along the Columbia River, there was a young boy, eight-year-old boy named Brian Ingram, who found uh, $6,000 of D.B. Cooper's money was three separate packets or packs of $20 bills that were very rotted. They'd obviously been there for quite some time. Uh, When that happened, the FBI... Took over the area there, that part of the beach, for about three or four days, and obviously searched trying to find additional items, and they really didn't find anything else. They found a few additional shards of money very near where the where the original money was found, uh, but nothing else. Uh, interestingly, when they were done, when the FBI was done, they never really recorded the spot precisely where the money was found. Inning decades, uh, the beach itself underwent an enormous amount of erosion and changed dramatically. So, what ended up taking place is, in the later years, as I started investigating this case and others started investigating the case, uh, we didn't know exactly where the money was found. We knew that it was found somewhere on this stretch of beach called Tina Bar, which is probably about fifteen hundred feet long, but we didn't know precisely where. So I went about the task of looking at old news footage from back in 1980 that included footage on the beach as well as helicopter footage, still pictures, things of this nature, identifying certain landmarks and things that are still in place today uh, for the purposes of identifying precisely where the money find spot was. And in January of 2019, I found that money find spot, I refound the money find spot. Now, just to give you an idea, in 1980, when the money was found by little Brian Ingram, uh, it was found about 40 feet from the water's edge, and it was found at an elevation on the beach about seven or eight feet above the level of the Columbia River. Nowadays, that spot is right about the water's edge during the summer months and during the spring months when the water flows a little bit more, a little higher, Uh, It's actually about 10 or 15 feet offshore under a foot and a half or two feet of water. So there's been an enormous amount of change there. One thing that I happened to notice as I was looking for this money find spot, trying to identify where it was, uh, one of the things I noticed in the FBI's investigation is there was one part of the beach that they didn't search. And... It was a part of the beach that was directly adjacent to where the money was found, uh, but a little up from where the money was found. Just to give your viewers an idea, your listeners an idea of what I'm talking about, you could walk from the dirt 40 feet down the, the beach uh, toward the water. And that's where the money was buried. And then another 40 or so feet, you would be at the river. And what I noticed is the authorities searched where the money was found and then down toward the river, but they never really searched from where the money was found back up toward this dirt road. And I think the reason why was because the authorities at first blush thought, Hey, the money must've been washed up from the river somehow, Mm -hmm. uh, which I don't believe is the case. Uh, but nonetheless, that part of the beach, literally 20, 30, 40 feet from the money find that goes back up to the dirt road, was never searched, was never dug up. Uh, and I'm
0: they, of the. Mm, sorry, were, were they of the opinion that um, he, he buried it all in one place and the sort of multiple site theory? Is that your own, or is that something you've just kind of subscribed to?
1: That's my theory there because um, uh, it's difficult to explain, but um, let me just put it this way. When DB Cooper landed, he had about 85 pounds worth of parachutes, briefcase and money with him tied to his person. So he was lugging around a lot of stuff. Now you may think, okay, he probably just immediately discarded the parachutes and left them laying somewhere, the problem is, is that area is largely agricultural, so certainly if he had simply discarded the parachutes on the ground or under a bush or something, they would have been discovered in the last 50 years. They haven't been, which is pretty telling. Also the fact that the money was found, of course, or a portion of the money was actually found on the beach, I think is, is very telling as well. So. Uh, my theory is, and I, th- I feel pretty confident about this, is that D.B. Cooper, when he landed uh, probably a half a mile or a mile from within where the money was buried, he immediately, everything still tied to his person, he immediately uh, made his way to the Columbia River uh, where the, there was a sandy beach and easy to, to dig a hole. And I believe that he dug three separate holes uh, one for the money, one for the parachutes, one for the attache case. Uh, the idea being or the notion being that it would have been easier for him to dig three smaller holes to bury these items separately as opposed to one gigantic pit throwing everything in the pit. Uh, so, yeah, given that the parachutes have never been found and the briefcase was never found, uh, I think in all likelihood it was buried very near where the money was found and in all likelihood buried in the same essentially the same vicinity uh, of the money relative to this, to this dirt road. So that, that, that spot is still intact. It's the only part of the beach that really wasn't eroded. Uh, But my task has been made more difficult because in later years, the landowners put big rocks and boulders and things of that nature on that part of the beach to stop erosion. So as a practical matter, what that means for me now is I've got to sort of dig down through a good two feet of rock dirt debris to expose the actual original beach underneath. And then it's a matter of just digging down 18 inches or so into the beach to see what, if anything is there. So, uh, we've got a, uh, a dig underway now we're a couple of days into it. Uh, I figure we'll probably got about another eight days left. That'll take place over the next, will be completed over the next six weeks, four to six weeks. Um, and it's about 300 square feet of, of area of beach, but I feel quite confident that those items were there all along, within feet of where the authorities were searching, and that that we'll find something
0: there. Do is there any pushback from the landowners, or is it sort of a state-owned area, or you know, did are you do they allow people to poke around with, with spades looking for things? Because I'm assuming you would get a few amateurs sort of sleuths hunting around a place like that.
1: Yeah, the people who own the land, they're called the Fazios, uh, they, the people who own the land now actually owned the land uh, during the time the money was found in 1980. In fact, there's old footage of them with their backhoes digging along the beach. The FBI actually hired them in their backhoe to do some trench digging on the beach uh, but I have a very good relationship with the uh, Fazio brothers, who are now older gentlemen, of course, uh, and they've been gracious enough to uh, give me permission to 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 be on their beach several times, and and obviously to search as well. So uh, others, uh, uh, people would be hunters. Let's just put it this way: uh, should not go. Uh, they're they're not welcome there. Uh, it is private property. It is hazardous. Uh, you know, I I'm just fortunate because I've managed to establish a positive relationship with these gentlemen over the last several years. And uh and uh and, and you know so that in, in that sense that's been nice because it's given me sort of privileged access to that part of the beach to to figure out what happened and to flesh out some of these theories and ideas. But I, I I, I would. I definitely wouldn't recommend anybody else going there and, and trying to look around uh, because it is private property. You would be trespassing, and it's uh, it is hazardous. It is a it is a somewhat dangerous spot.
0: And you stagger your visits there because obviously you, you live in Arizona. Um, you you said over the next six weeks. Are you, are you do you just make frequent trips up there? Is that how it works? And and do a grid at a time, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I think what's going to happen here is, again, I've, as I've mentioned, I estimate we're probably talking about eight days worth of search. And it's not just me. I've got a few volunteers as well. It's not a real big area. So it's not like we can have a dozen people there. We can have basically four people maximum. Yeah. Uh, but one of the two things is going to happen. I'm either going to travel up there and we'll just hang out eight days in a row, or we'll split it up, we'll, you know, maybe do four days and then come back again and do it another four days later. But yeah, as you noted, I'm in Arizona, which is about a thousand miles away uh, f- uh, from where this, the frontina bar. So the logistics, uh, you know, I've got some logistics to, to deal with and factor into uh, any kind of uh, search and so forth.
0: What, what would be the ultimate? I mean, what, finding the money or finding evidence of, of the man himself or, or, you know, the parachutes, what would be your sort of, um, raison d'etre of the whole thing?
1: Well, I tell you what, um, I think finding either of the parachutes or the attache case, the briefcase would be enormously valuable. It would, first of all, it'd be the first set of evidence found outside of the jet, uh, since the money was found in 1980, or a portion of the money was found in 1980. But the briefcase in particular is something that I'm interested in. And the reason why is because the flight attendants mentioned that while the briefcase appeared to be cheap, uh, it appeared to be brand new. And D.B. Cooper had what appeared to be a bomb assembled on the inside. Of course, I don't believe that it's a real bomb, and I think the authorities also, likewise, they feel like it wasn't a real bomb. But the point is that obviously there were components, batteries, road flares, tape, wire, things of that nature that would would be, have been utilized in the interior to make this bomb. Uh, so if this briefcase was closed shut, buried underground, uh, and been sitting in a cold, dark environment for the last 50 years, uh, There's a very real possibility that finding that and opening it up, we may be able to find some fingerprints, certainly on the tape, any that electrical tape or whatever happened to be used on the inside or some of those other components. I also think there's a possibility that we may have some well preserved DNA as well, just given the conditions that this stuff would have been stored under in the last 50 years. But even aside from that, just finding the items. Uh, may provide an opportunity where we can look at, for example, some of the items that are assembled uh, on the interior plus the briefcase itself. And we can figure out where these things, where these items were procured. And that may help us pin down where D.B. Cooper came from as well. So I think the briefcase in particular would be of enormous value because it's something that D.B. Cooper himself actually owned. The parachutes. were not owned by D.B. Cooper. Those were delivered to D.B. Cooper by the authorities in Seattle.
0: Okay. Why four parachutes?
1: Well, what he ordered were basically two sets of parachutes. So he ordered two front parachutes, two parachutes, uh, two reserves, reason why this has been a matter of some speculation for a while i think uh, part of the reason is because uh he wanted to have the authorities contemplate the prospect that maybe he was going to force one of the crew members to jump with him therefore they're less likely to uh mess around or disable plus i think uh I think he realized that in advance, I think he anticipated that he was going to have to cannibalize one of these parachutes for the purposes of cutting out several feet of shroud line. Uh, Again, for the purposes of attaching the money and briefcase and other items to his person before he jumped. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, So to the I, I, I think that that's probably the reason he ordered the two sets of parachutes or the four parachutes.
0: And you mentioned earlier um, on the actual jump, there was a 36-minute delay from... What was the reason for that delay, first of all? Do you think it was the weather? Because the weather was packing in in, wasn't it, at the time?
1: Uh, it really didn't have anything to do with the weather. And I'll, I'll back up by saying that they know precisely when D.B. Cooper jumped, and the reason why is because As he started working his way out along these air stairs, the the Boeing 727 has air stairs that deploy from the back bottom of the fuselage. So when the air stairs were released right after the jet took off, they were kind of hanging open, but not all the way because obviously the jet's traveling at 200 miles an hour. And that that air stream is keeping the jets, the, the air stairs sort of up. In the up position, but ajar nonetheless. But as Cooper started walking down those air stairs, the air stairs started to lower more into the slipstream. Uh, and then ultimately he jumped from the end of the stairs and the air stairs snapped back up into the bottom of the fuselage, kind of like a diving board. And it created a momentary popping sensation uh, in the ears of the pilots. So they do know, we do know when he jumped. It was 8, 12, 8, 13 p.m. that night. Uh, to get back to your original question, what 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 was the reason for the delay with his jump? There were two things. Uh, first of all, he ordered that $200,000 be to be delivered to him in a knapsack. And when the authorities delivered the money, it was not in a knapsack. It was actually in an, a white canvas open top bank bag that didn't have a zipper on the top, didn't have a snap on the top, didn't even have a handle on it. So Cooper immediately recognized that this was problematic, that he was going to have to tie off the top of that bag. So he spent several minutes doing that, figuring out a solution related to that. Part of the problem also was, is that uh, I believe that the bag was quite full And before he could actually tie off the top of that bag, some of the ransom had to be removed to create a little more space at the top of the bag for him to properly cinch Uh, that that ransom that was removed. I believe he housed in one of these reserve parachutes with. So he had to take care of that. The other thing is that uh, before the jet took off from Seattle, he wanted the jet to take off with those air stairs actually down just hanging open in other words literally dragging upon the runway uh the pilots uh didn't want to do that of course and there was some back and forth that took place between cooper and the pilots and ultimately db cooper relented and let the authorities take off with the air stairs in their proper and up position Uh, The idea being that as soon as the jet took off, D.B. Cooper could go in the back and pull this handle and then release the stairs. Uh, The problem was once the jet took off, D.B. Cooper tried to release the stairs and they wouldn't release. So that also created somewhat of a problem. The pilots had to slow the jet down, had to level it off. And then after they did that, D.B. Cooper was actually able to pull the handle and release the stairs. So uh, the releasing of the stairs, and of course, Tackling this problem with respect to the money and how it was delivered ultimately delayed Cooper just enough, whereby that small window, that six or seven minute window, that jump window uh, that would have been in place once the jet took off from Seattle, which would have afforded Cooper the opportunity to jump in the outskirts of Seattle, came and went very quickly. Uh, And I think that Cooper, by the time he was ready, realized they were flying over pitch black nothingness, which obviously wasn't suitable either. Uh, So I think he looked for the next best opportunity, which were the emerging glow and lights of what happened to be a metropolitan Portland or greater Portland, Oregon, which of course the jet approached uh, within about 36 minutes. And and that's why as they were approaching that area, Cooper took that opportunity to jump because of course he realizes he's going to have to walk back to civilization at some point here. And uh, I think so. I think that's ultimately why he jumped 36 minutes after taking off, as opposed to six minutes after taking off.
0: Um, Now, I was just over the years. Obviously, there's there's, we touched on it briefly at the start. A few candidates have been put forward in terms of suspects for DB uh, Cooper. Sheridan Peterson is probably the most well-known of those. He passed away on the 8th of January of uh, this year. Um, he's the one who seemed to attract the most um, press. And if you do a search on who was um, Dan Cooper or DB Cooper, um, this fellow Peterson comes up quite a bit. Where, where do you sit in terms of you know the likeness of him, him being your man?
1: Sheridan Peterson is a fascinating suspect. He's somebody that I've investigated quite a bit, and I actually knew Sheridan Peterson. I got the opportunity to uh, to speak with him on the phone and text him and email him. Uh, during my investigation, he's a guy who became a suspect within mere days of the skyjacking. And, uh, he was actually one of very few suspects. When I say very few, I'm talking literally like three or four guys that had their DNA actually taken in and attempted to be compared to this partial DNA profile that the FBI believes that they have for 2003 or 2004. Uh, He's an intriguing suspect for a number of different reasons. For a long time, I thought he was likely D.B. Cooper. I'm not so sure anymore uh, for a couple of reasons, Uh, primarily because of uh, D.B. Cooper appeared to be a regular smoker. The evidence seems to clearly indicate that not just because he smoked eight cigarettes on the jet, but also uh, there was a skinny black clip on tie that. D.B. Cooper left behind on the jet, uh, which was discovered, of course, by the authorities in Reno once the jet landed. I believe that was an error. I believe it was a mistake. But some of the evidence that's been discovered on the tie in later years seems to indicate that D.B. Cooper was the regular smoker. And Sheridan Peterson, to the best of my knowledge, never smoked going you know, from his first life to the co-workers that he worked with during the time. People that have known him in later years and no one's ever seen him smoke at all, which is problematic because if D.B. Cooper was a smoker and Sheridan Peterson wasn't a smoker. Well, by definition, he couldn't be D.B. Cooper. So uh, plus there are some other things on the tie that, uh, that I think kind of point me in a little different direction, but definitely uh, a very, very intriguing suspect. I would not be overly surprised at some point if we determine that Sheridan Peterson was actually D.B. Cooper. Having said that, I think uh, that he probably wasn't D.B. Cooper. I'm of the opinion that the real D.B. Cooper is probably somebody, believe it or not, that is a complete unknown. Somebody who flew underneath the radar for the last 50 years. Again, just didn't talk about it. And and I, and obviously ultimately got away with it all
0: and what was um peterson when he was alive what was his angle when you spoke with him did did you question him directly you know did you did you put it in front of him say, the fbi thinks you yeah. might have been involved a lot of people think you might have been involved were you involved
1: yeah. And, and again, you know, Sheridan Peterson was a suspect. So, I mean, I've I've got the original FBI documentation going back to 1971 showing that he was uh, showing that he was a suspect and really never eliminated as a suspect. One of the intriguing things about Sheridan Peterson is uh, I'm aware of three suspects that had their DNA compared their partial DNA profile. One was a gentleman named. Dwayne Weber. one was a gentleman named L.D. Cooper, and the other was Sheridan Peterson. The FBI itself has publicly said that Dwayne and Cooper is in a not match. Therefore, they're not D.B. Cooper. Sheridan Peterson, on the other hand, they said nothing about it all. And I've actually inquired about that and they've been mum about that. They said nothing. Now, now that Sheridan Peterson has passed on, and you referenced that he passed away a few months ago on January eighth of this year, um, I am working with his oldest son, who is in his sixties. Uh, we've petitioned the FBI to get those DNA results uh, under the Freedom of Information Act. Um, I was notified months ago that the FBI did approve our request, so we will ultimately get the results. We're just waiting for them. I, I have no idea when we're going to get those results. But uh, uh, Sheridan straight up told me that he wasn't D.B. Cooper. He was very coy about it. He's always very coy about it. And what's problematic, there are a number of things that he mentioned, a number of theories and ideas that he proffered with respect to the uh, the parachutes and things of that nature that are suspect. It, Sheridan seemed to, have knowledge of the parachutes and certain aspects of the crime that have never been made public, which is intriguing to consider. So, uh, you know, if it weren't for the fact that I just have never been able to peg Sheridan Peterson as a a cigarette smoker, I would say, you know, in all likelihood he was the guy, but that cigarette smoking thing is is a very big problem. Uh, So uh, that's where we are.
0: Yeah, particularly during an era when when the majority of people smoked as well, it's um, it certainly stands out, doesn't it? Um, That's right. Did they get a good catch for DNA off the cigarette butts, or they is it? What happened to that evidence?
1: The the cigarette butts were destroyed. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation uh, talk about the cigarette butts being lost. They were not lost. They were actually purposely destroyed by the FBI. And again, I've seen the FBI documentation related to this. Uh, The cigarette butts were sent to Quantico, which is where the FBI investigative lab is in Virginia. Uh, They were looking for fingerprints. Again, this is 71. We don't have DNA testing, anything of that nature. Uh, They really didn't find much. They considered the cigarettes to be of little or apparently no value and ultimately were destroyed. So, no, the DNA did not come from that. My understanding is that the DNA partial DNA profile that they have is from this clip on tie that was left behind. I am unclear as to where on the tie they came up with the DNA obviously the the tie itself was handled by several agents and other people uh, during the intervening decades so their DNA as well would be on the tie uh, so I, I'm just not sure I don't really know how to uh, I don't know how to vet <laughs> the, the the viability of DNA by uh, a guy named Jeffrey Gray, who was an author, who was one of a few people that had special access to the tie. I, if I'm not mistaken, I think he mentioned in one of his articles that the DNA profile was affected from a saliva sample on the tie. I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, but, but it's intriguing, and I certainly would like to know why is that the FBI is so comfortable with this in this belief that they have a partial DNA profile from D.B. Cooper.
0: Because um, it's got to be a real stick in the mud for them as well, isn't it? Because you you quite often see TV shows and they're sort of veteran agents where they're almost haunted by the whole thing, aren't they? And, they, you know, it's just how, how it holds its appeal for so long, I suppose, as we spoke earlier, because of the mystique that's been created by, you know, it being left unresolved.
1: And it's the in the United States history. Uh, there's no doubt about it that uh, some of the agents took it personal. Uh, and uh, I'm thinking of a gentleman named Ralph Himmelsbach, in particular who was headquartered in the port office and was really sort of the, the public face of the investigation on behalf of the FBI for many years at the beginning. Uh, Ralph Himmelsbach passed away a, a few years ago. But uh, it's clear to me when as I look at some of his comments and so forth, that he really took it personally. I mean, this is this is one guy he wanted to catch. Uh, But of course, that never happened. And I think. We're getting away. What I mean by that is it's clear to me, looking at the FBI files that the FBI right off the bat underestimated this guy. You know, the, initially he had to be some sort of crazy man, obviously didn't know what he was doing, who in their right mind would jump in the middle of the woods, blah, 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 uh, this, that and the other thing. But as time has gone by, I came to appreciate actually how sophisticated and detailed D.B. Cooper's plan was. And I just think that the FBI. uh underestimated their enemy you know <laughs> you know isn't that kind of like you know rules of war number 101 don't underestimate your 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 adversary uh and i think that that played a part ultimately in db uh, cooper getting away
0: and do you think it was a solo act the whole thing do you think he had any help at any stage
1: i'm of the opinion it was a solo act that it was, it was a lone guy uh, there's nothing that I've seen that indicates that there was an accomplice or anything of that nature. Uh, it would be intriguing. Interesting to see if there was an accomplice, the guy on the ground. How exactly was the two hundred thousand dollars divvied up? Because obviously the D B Cooper had the hard part, you know, mm-hmm. he was the guy for legal jeopardy at, at any point. Uh, but but having said that, in all seriousness, I think it's pretty clear that DB Cooper acted alone, and, and again, that also played a part in him getting away because uh, the totality of of the crime and what was known about it, uh, and how it was executed and everything else, I think was you know was all of that knowledge was possessed by one man and one man alone. And if that one man is careful and doesn't say much, is buttoned up you know, that leaves very little for anybody else to latch onto for the authorities to grab onto and figure out who he
0: was. Loose lips sink ships, as they used to say. That's right. (laughs) Uh, Can I let you go, Eric, uh, without mentioning you, you've got a report out. It's a PDF report. Um, Now it's called, it's 144 pages. It's called Sky Ghost, the DB Cooper report. Um, Where is that available? Where can people see that?
1: Yeah, I have a, a personal website that has a lot of information related to my research. That's uh, ericulis.com. So it's just my name, ericulis.com, E R I C U L I S.com. I do have a uh, a report, a quite detailed report, 144 pages that are really into every aspect. talks a fair amount about Sheridan Peterson. Uh, and also ultimately uh, provide some solutions uh, with respect to what I believe actually happened and, and who D.B. Cooper actually was. But that's available on the website as well. And that is a, just in PDF format, just in digital format.
0: Excellent. com. We could talk all night, but I, it looks like you uh, need to get a few Zs. Says, Thanks for coming on Occam's Razor. Well,
1: it's my pleasure very much. Uh, enjoyed it very
0: much yeah excellent and uh, you enjoy the rest of your evening try and get some sleep and uh, and don't be a stranger if um, you manage to dig up sort of a couple hundred thousand dollars in cash
1: Uh, you'll be the first person I call how about that
0: (laughs) good man Eric (laughs) thanks for coming on my pleasure thank you see you later buddy bye bye you bet bye bye